If you think cash back at thousands of your favorite stores sounds too good to be true, think again. With Rakuten, you can save on whatever you're buying for the holidays. So while you're getting gifts for friends and family, get some cash back for yourself too. Don't forget festive home decor, party outfits, and that trip to see your fam. Because shopping for everything is much more magical with cash back. Rakuten makes it so easy. Here's how it works. Rakuten partners with stores you know and love. Places like Macy's, Bobby Brown, Finish Line, and Ray-Ban. These stores actually pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares that money with you as cash back. You can even stack coupons and deals on top of cash back. Shop at Rakuten.com or by using the Rakuten app, and you'll get your cash back payments through PayPal or check. It's that easy. Start your holiday shopping with Rakuten.com to save at over 3,500 stores. Shop for free at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Rakuten.com. part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to review the good, the bad, and the indifferent of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for the Geek Show and horrified the British Horror website. And I've been joined this week by... By Rob Simpson, host of Directors Uncut. The sibling podcast, I guess we'd call it. Indeed. You've just finished doing a Directors Uncut podcast, which I'm sure will be out by the time I put this out, about Alejandro Hodorowsky, which I think yeah. that's the sort of thing you you imagine happening to you when you're having a sleep paralysis dream. Yeah, it's just uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky in the corner with that mad hat he's got on in the Holy <laughs> Mountain, just staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> but this by contrast this by contrast entirely uh, an, an easy watch I would say oh yeah um, not for a lot of people though but for me definitely yeah we are doing The Dead Don't Die which we did uh, quite late on in our other movie podcast pop screen so I've I think I've seen this the third time I've seen this now. I saw it once for pop screen. I saw it again with some friends and I've saw it. Uh, I've seen it uh, to do this, which, as you say, for some people, that's, you know, what yeah. they faced within Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I loved it. And then after that, it had a lot of the bad reception. And I thought, hang on, do I actually love it? <laughs> mm. Yes. And I watched it again this time. But yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I really do like this one. Certain aspects of film Twitter are essentially gaslighting, aren't you? They're tr- they're trying to make you doubt the thing that you know you saw on the screen. Yeah, happens more often than I'd like to admit that one. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So the Dead Don't Die is 
a zombie film written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. Um, it's probably second only to Straight to Hell in terms of the volume of musicians that are in this movie. Like, whatever you think of the film's quality, the quantity is Weird. beyond reproach. And variety, yeah. It's yeah. Very different worlds that some of them belong to. Yeah, should we start by discussing some of them? Because I think that there'll be some that I imagine you're fans of, that you're a fan of, and there were some maybe not. But the film's gift to eternity is Iggy Pop playing a zombie. Yeah, and before you get into whether I like Iggy Pop or the performance, I was just watching it back this time. Iggy Pop's really short. <laughs> yeah, he is actually, isn't he? <laughs> He pops only a little fella. Mm. When you see him in the footage of the classic 1970s festival scenes where he's just this, this fierce man of wild energy, you think he must be at least a, a solid 6'4". Yeah. But no, only a little fella. I think it's because he's kind of a, a wiry, kind of athletic-looking guy. He looks taller yeah. than he is, maybe. He projects tall. Yeah. yeah. He's got big, tall energy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Iggy Pop, yeah, I absolutely adore Iggy Pop. It took me a while, though. Mm. I think it's the vocal delivery. When I was young, I grew up with punk rock and sort of... Well, I discovered punk rock through the 80s, so like bands like Fugazi and Black Flag and things like this. Yeah. And his vocal style doesn't really jam with that. It's more kind of laconic, isn't it? He's even when mm. the song is really energetic, he's got this kind of laid-back drawl. Yeah, it's also um, a little bit of classic era rock in it as well, in the way he delivers his vocals. And also, I think part of that is is uh, tempered by the fact that the song from... It wasn't with the Stooges, uh, it was on his own, I think. But the song he did for Train Spotting, I ah, legitimately yes. hate. I so hate that song. Really? <laughs> Lust for Life? <laughs> Took me years to get over that. <laughs> I, did, I did, and I realized, hang on, this Iggy Pop fella, quite good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's... I suppose some of that thing is generational, isn't it? Because whereas we bracket the Stooges as kind of an early tremor of punk now, mm. they started in the late 60s. Absolutely no one was talking about yeah. punk rock back then. Yeah, it was only three albums that did as well, so it wasn't. It didn't have a long enough career to really forge a genre really yeah they were one of those 60s bands like the velvet underground uh who were more important than they were popular i guess yeah if i remember the albums fun house self-titled and raw power mm. raw power was a little bit after the fact so the first two were at the time hmm yeah Raw well, yeah, Power is incredible, I think. And I, oh, I, yeah. I love the, the ongoing saga of how to remaster it because are you aware of the battles over remastering Raw Power? I know. I mean, the only version I've heard is, uh, I don't know when it was released, but it was a version which is very loud. Probably louder yeah. than it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't that's, know what that plays, but yeah. That's the thing, because when... Uh, when CDs first came out and when classic albums were first being remastered from vinyl onto CD, uh, Iggy was asked to supervise the remastering of Raw Power. 
and his response was just to put everything up to the maximum, go out for 45 <laughs> minutes, and then come back and press stop, which is, is kind of brilliant. It's, it's exactly what you want from Raw Power, isn't it? I mean, the album yeah. title isn't pissing about. Oh, no, I mean, it's mastering as it should be. Yeah. Louder. Everything <laughs> 11. He was living Spinal Tap. <laughs> he was. Yeah. yeah. But he's had a pretty... I mean, for someone who you, you look at him and you just say, that's Iggy Pop, it can be no one else. He's had a pretty great acting career, hasn't he? I remember seeing him in a lot, but I also can't actually remember anything he's been in. He's just one of those... He just dotted around all over the place in in smaller roles usually. Yeah, he he sort of pops up for cameos in a lot of stuff, and I mean I'm sure there's plenty of bad stuff that he's in, but there's there's some stuff that's really lasted because he's worked with really interesting directors. He was in uh, Cry Baby by John Waters. He's incredibly oh, okay. memorable in that. And of course, he has a really memorable turn in, well, in a lot of Jim Jarmusch films, but in Dead Man, he's fantastic. No one oh, forgets him in Dead I Man. I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I've seen Dead Man. He's one of the headhunters having a chat around a fire, isn't he? No, no, he's, there's like three guys uh, who Johnny Depp's character, William Blake, runs into when he first goes yeah. on the run, and they form this weird kind of family unit. Billy Bob Thornton's one of them, and I think the other one is a young Jared Harris, and Iggy Pop is sort of the mum. He's, like, in a big gingham dress for the whole oh, thing. Oh, yeah. I really need to see Dead Man again. That is a good movie. It's so great. Yeah. And the thing about Dead Man is, I remember talking to you about this many, many years ago, like pretty soon after we first met, I think. But Jim Jarmusch has this kind of two-stranded career, doesn't he, where he does fairly small character studies that are, you know, good, sometimes great. I love Patterson, but they're kind of what you expect from an indie director. But then there's this other strand of his work, which is about genre, isn't there? Yeah, and I think the, the people who like the genres in question, I think Dead Man's probably the exception to the rule, but the people who like the genres that he dips a toe into tend to hate it. Because <laughs> I think, uh, he is, uh, for example, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. Yeah. It's a vampire movie. This isn't a vampire horror movie. What is this? This is terrible. I hate it. <laughs> and it's the same with Only Lovers Left Alive. This isn't a vom- uh, zombie movie. What is this? This is terrible. This is the worst. Oh, my God. Burn it with fire. And he's never really engaged those movies by their own rules. He's kind of just, this is me, and I'm just doing a movie with zombies or vampires in it. Completely, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Dead Man as an ex- exception to that, because... One of the things I love about Dead Man is it's actually the movie that made Westerns click with me. And I can say that. Because it's like, I mean, aside from the fact that it's really good, which it is, it's really, really good. But it was the one that brought it home to me that when Westerns talk about, like, a lawless frontier town, they, they actually mean there was no law there, and everyone yeah. there was actually quite mad. Oh, yeah, and I, I don't know if that was the one that, made them click for me in any way but to me westerns are always it's your dad's favorite thing Mm, mm. they're not a cool thing it's your dad's favorite thing and you see movies like uh, dead man it's like oh actually yeah this is this is good stuff yeah (laughs) yeah 
it makes that feel relevant. Whereas with something like The Dead Don't Die, I mean, zombie movies did not need any help to be relevant at this point. Actually, I do think they did need help to be relevant because they've, it's relevant in the sense of they've broke through in the pop culture, but they've broke through in such an extent that everybody's tired of them. There's mm. nothing left to say. I'm really sick of this stuff. Do something new for me. So yeah, it's kind of like an anti-relevance. It's already relevant, but making it relevant in a way beyond just fatigue. I think that's a fair point. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I'm thinking back to like in 2004, where you had Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake and Shaun of the Dead in the same year, and there was definitely this reaction of, oh, people are making zombie movies again. It's like yeah. no one felt like that when The Dead Don't Die came out. There was, as you say, probably more of a sense of, why won't people stop making zombie movies? Yes. <laughs> Oof, another zombie movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I think uh, I think that's the, the thing that makes this work is, it's not a horror movie. Yeah. It's it's not trying to be a horror movie at all. It's a comedy movie in Jim Jarmusch's worldview and universe. And yeah. with that, it's a resounding success for me. No, I absolutely agree. And I think if, you know, something like Shaun of the Dead is a very funny movie, I think it probably yeah. works best as a comedy. But if you go into it because you love zombie movies, you'll still be happy. It works oh, well yeah. as that as well. But... You're right, this is absolutely a comedy, and I think that a lot of the people who disliked it were expecting it to have something to say about zombies or something to do with the genre when mm. it doesn't really. It's just a pretext. It's a, a hangout movie, mm. and I will say this, I had no idea that uh, Adam Driver was so funny. Yeah. Oh, his, his timing. Oh, wow, his timing. Everything think, he said almost had me. Adam Driver's voice is one of American cinema's great modern treasures. And I think that the best example of it is the bit where he first suggests that this might, these killings might be the work of zombies. And he just spends ages trying to convince Bill Murray of it, going, ghouls, the undead. <laughs> so great. Even punchlines, he, I think he has the third run. It says, uh, what, what caused that? Was it an animal, a series of animals? And then I think uh, he turns up, says, What was that? An animal, a series of animals. And then uh, Chloe Savigny turns up, What was that? An animal, a group of animals. And it's just, it's not a punchline in any way, but it's just that laconic way. And I think it's when Adam Driver says it with his inimitable voice that it's like, mm. Yes, this is a funny bit. This, I like yeah. this bit. <laughs> and it pops up again in the news as well how uh, the news reporter uses that same uh, thing yeah the news reporter is Rosie Perez playing a character called Posey Juarez which again is kind of almost a joke I think it sounds like a spoonerism then doesn't it yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's it's one of those things where even before it gets up to the absolute rupture with reality that happens at the end that really pissed some people off, there is this element where you cannot immerse yourself in the dead, don't die. You are always being reminded that these people are actors who've played other roles that you've seen in the past. Yeah, a little bit um, where I think uh, 
what's she called? Her name's completely gone out of my eye now. Uh, oh, Scottish, Tilda Swinton. Tilda yeah. Swinton, yeah. Meet, meet um, Adam Driver says, ooh, Star Wars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little touch like that, because, you know, in another movie, that sort of fourth wall break would be quite obnoxious, but the fourth wall breaks in this are quite relaxed. Yeah. Just, ooh, that exists. It's just not a big deal out of it. I think some of them are surprisingly subtle. Like, it was only on this viewing that I realised how funny it is when Larry Fessenden, is, who plays, like, a motel manager, is talking to Bill Murray and Adam Driver about how the people staying with him are hipsters, and he just spits out the word hipsters, which is quite funny anyway, because it's, like, a weird priority to have in the middle of a zombie attack, but <laughs> Fessenden, Driver, and Murray have all had phases in their career where their film work has been kept afloat by hipsters so there's a kind of nice meta element to it as well i mean yeah i mean jim jarmusch i mean as far as hipster filmmakers go he's he's your alpha dog really he is yeah he's so hipster he was hipster before hipster was a thing (laughs) yes he was (laughs) but yeah um Yeah, it's uh, and, and Murray's had a good run with Jarmusch at this point. I think the first work he did with him was that bit in Coffee and Cigarettes where he's in a cafe with Ruzza, who is also in this film. Oh, he is, yeah. Thankfully, he doesn't have a big role in this, but yeah. You have, like, lasting bad blood with Rizzo after his directorial debut, don't you? Uh, yeah, the man with the iron fists, I think. Uh, when I watched The um, the Tourist, I was inventing new swear words. I was that angry with it. <laughs> when I watched The Man with the Iron Fists, I think I just sort of inverted and become a new galaxy. Like an Akira. <laughs> <laughs> it was too much for me. <laughs> Yeah, he's the uh, he's the guy from Woo PS, which again a completely reality breaking uh, reference there. Yes, Wu Tang Clan, you know. That's... Indeed. Yeah. But it's sort of one of the things that sometimes when you like a film, you can separate the criticisms into things that. Um, of obviously just dismissible things that you just don't agree with and don't take seriously. And things where you think, oh yeah, I can kind of see your point there. I know a lot of people said that The Dead Don't Die felt kind of dated. And part of the joke in the WPS scene is that he's going through like the weekly world news and all these mad American supermarket tabloids and saying, oh yeah, this is actually happening, which is a joke Mm. that Men in Black did over 20 years before this. And it's like... Yeah, I can understand why people might think there's nothing that fresh in The Dead Don't Die. It just feels kind of fresh. Yeah, I think it's it's just the pacing and the delivery, really, that makes Mm. it timeless. I don't mean how do I word this. There's a lot of movies that are very proud in their their script. Yeah. This, it doesn't really have that feeling about it. It just feels quite incidental and... uh, Improvisational. So it feels sort of... like it feels like an inside joke that you're in on, which is always risky with these kind of all-star movies. Like I haven't 
ventured to watch that new Judd Apatow thing on Netflix yet, but um, um, the button or something, yeah, the bubble, yeah, that's it, yeah. But it can very easily look smug, but this is just a goof, and it's not pretending to be anything other than a goof, and it's you know it works on that level, I think. Yeah, it's just little things as well, like for no reason whatsoever. It's not set up. Tilda Swinton is a, a heavily Scottish. She's a Scottish woman anyway, but I was amazed when I found that out, by the way. I had no idea. She's just sort of nationless. That is but, one of those things, isn't it? It's, that's like the sort of our generation's equivalent of like Gen Z hearing Jodie Comer talking scouse and thinking, what yes. the fuck? <laughs> but when I found out Tilda Swinton was Scottish, like, wow. I don't know yeah. any, anything, but she plays a, a, a mortician, basically. Mm. And there's just a little scene where she's introduced, as you do, with a mortician from Scotland, just messing around with a samurai sword, <laughs> as you do. And yeah. her next next scene, she ha- she's making up two uh, dead bodies, basically like survivors of the glam era. For no reason <laughs> yes. whatsoever, she's just doing it. Characters make no logical sense, but you can see the actors having like so much fun with them. Mm. And I think it, it may not surprise you to hear that Swinton suggested quite a lot of her characters' ticks to Jarmush. They feel authentically <laughs> Swintonian, I would say. I'm happy that she did that. Yeah. It's on brand for her. Absolutely. Yes. But before we see any of this, of course, the first. Uh, music star that we see is Tom Waits playing Tom Waits. <laughs> yeah. well, I can't remember the name he's given, sort of like Homeless Bill or something. Hermit Bob, isn't it? That's it, yeah, Hermit that. Bob, that sounds right. Uh, where, is it? where is it? Hermit Bob, yes. Yeah, he, he seems sort of like a narrator in it, doesn't it? He's living yeah. outside the town and just saying this ain't right. Ooh, mm. the end of days is upon us and pinching uh, Steve Buscemi's chickens. Well, yeah, or, or is he? Because there is a mass animal exodus early in this film, which could well be a more believable culprit. He is eating a chicken at the end of it as well. He says, mm, those, those are good chickens, he says, towards <laughs> the end. So I just assumed he pinched one and he just blamed it all on the mass exodus. Maybe, yeah. I think it's telling that the the campfire that Bill Murray and Adam Driver find at the start has a dead squirrel next to it, but no dead chicken. I think that that is one of approximately three subtleties in this film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as for his music, I'm not sure what I think, really. Yeah. Because his, his voice is, is second to none. It's mm. So blues, it's so one of a kind. It's it's hard not to be swept up in it. But I've never really got into his music all that much. I love his voice, but the music, I just don't know. Really, I think Waits is another guy who I guess there's kind of two strands to his work. There's a strand to his work that is close to a kind of it's like a twist away from being a conventional singer-songwriter, you know, he still Mm. sounds like Tom Waits, he can't sound like anyone else, but there's a part of his work where you can more appreciate that he is as good as anyone in the world at sitting down at the piano and writing a blues song, 
And then there's the completely bananas industrial kind of nine inch nails before nine inch nails were nine inch nails scientists work, which I have a lot of time for. I love that shit. I think it's incredible. He's an enigma, really. Uh, but yeah, it's just like I, I haven't had that sort of lightning bolt breakthrough moment with him, I don't think. There's a couple of uh, a couple of albums that I would recommend anyone tried, although they, they do kind of lean towards that more kind of abrasive side of his work that I've said I like, but uh, Bone Machine and Blood Money, I would say, are worth checking out. And I if you like the, them, there'll be more to explore. In my younger and punkier days, um, when I probably wasn't quite as musically open as I am now, I tried, what is it, Swordfish Trombones? Swordfish Trombones, yes. And that I, I tried to like it, but it just didn't click. Swordfish really. Trombones is up against some uh, stiff competition, probably the weirdest thing that he's done. Uh, and it, it has that kind of status like Trout Mask Replica in Captain Beefheart's output where it's famous not because it's the accessible one, it's famous because it's the furthest out there he ever got. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I dip my toe in the worst place to dip my toe. It's Yeah, because that happens. And I, I sort of admire that it is possible for an artist's classic album to be the craziest one. But I had the same problem with Captain Beefheart. I, I listened to Trout Mask Replica and I just thought, what the fuck is this because <laughs> even when you've listened to quite a lot of beef heart that is a really alienating album it is really quite unpleasant in a lot of ways it's always the risk you get with those uh artists with monumental film like uh discographies mm. uh, like like the fall for example where just that with the fall where just oh, that with all yeah. these mega bands and usually when you look at these lists it's always the, the ones that stand out most Mm. And the ones that stand out most probably aren't the best places to start. No, I don't think so. I think it's one of those instances where you have to go kind of the old-fashioned route and find a friend who likes this stuff and go, what would you like? So, like, a couple of years ago, I'd always kind of liked Neil Young, but a couple of years ago I made the decision to really heavily get into Neil Young. And I think one of the things that made it work was rather than just you know, listening to Harvest, because that's the one on the classic albums list. I said to a friend, what should I listen to? And he said, oh, you should listen to On the Beach. And I did, and it's fantastic. Yeah, and sometimes it takes a fancy and all these things. Completely, yeah. Yeah, um, Waits has also had a really impressive acting career, hasn't he? For Again, someone yes. who, who seems to be only Tom Waits. You think, how can this guy be anyone else? But he has successfully done it. He's had some great roles as well. I mean, uh, one that stands out from the top of my head. I can't remember which McDonough it was with. Um, ah, Martin, I believe. You think of Seven Psychopaths? I am thinking of Seven Psychopaths. He played a very iconic role than that. Probably more, yeah. more iconic than the film itself, to be honest. Yeah, I would agree. I think... Yeah, him and him and Christopher Walken are definitely the best things that film has in it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, Waits has done some fantastic stuff with Robert Altman, and I love Robert Altman. But the one that I always think back to is again a film which is 
where he is, one of the best things about it is Terry Gilliam's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I've never seen that one. It's one of the few Gilliam I've not ventured into. Firstly, it's fun. I think, you know, it, <laughs> it, it had a bit of extra weight put on it because it was Heath Ledger's last film and it can't quite live up to that. But I think going back to it now, it's surprising how much fun it is. But Waits is basically playing the devil in that. And oh, that's perfect. Exactly. That's what you get Tom Waits for. Hobos and Satan. <laughs> He's got a, a magnetism about him. So, you know, you, you, you really lean into that. Absolutely, yes. Even if anybody doesn't like his style of music, you cannot deny the charisma the man has. No, completely, yeah. Yeah. So we've covered we, we've covered Tom Waits, we've covered Iggy Pop, we've covered Rosa. Um, we still have, like, the fourth point of the major stars, and it's someone who I never thought I would see in the same context as Iggy Pop and Tom Waits. <laughs> uh, but Selena Gomez is in this film. Yeah, that's a odd fourth side of the square, isn't it? It really is, yeah. I mean, first, yeah. off, first off, maximum respect to her for doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most out there thing. She, she was in Spring Breakers, was she not? She was, yes. That, that was her. I'm being a rebel. I'm not a Disney whatever they call those actors who come from the Disney school there. I'm not one of those. Yeah. I'm a real actor. I'm going to do this mad movie with this weird guy who's got a character called Alien. And just, it's, it's a headache-inducing film. It really is. There's like, <laughs> the, there's, there's like a spectrum of how you do the I'm a grown-up now pivot when you've been a Disney star, isn't it? Like Aviana Grande wore skimpier outfits. That seems to have worked yeah. for her. Selena Gomez was in a Harmony Corinne movie. And you, all right, maybe that's maybe that's going a bit too far the other way, to be honest. Maybe you, you could have just swore in a song or something and it would have served <laughs> the same function. Yeah. But uh, this is it's a nice place for her, really, because she seemed oddly for somebody who was in that sort of very quippy, fast-paced Disney production. Yeah. To go from that to something which there's so much breathing room in this and the script. You could drive buses through the gaps. Yeah. And for her to adapt to that different pattern, that different rhythm, she takes it impeccably well in her stride. It's a test of how natural you can be, isn't it, I guess? Yeah. It's knowing when not to act and when to just, you know, be, I guess. Yeah. Because there's a fear I... with certain actors how they've got to constantly... It's dead, no, dead air is bad, is bad. You've got to fill yeah. that up, you've got to react, you've got to perform. But no, it's just just be. And yeah. It's that attitude, well. isn't it? That it's, oh, it's acting when I'm doing a thing, and the more things yeah. I do, the better the acting is, which is not actually how it works. Oh, no, and she plays one of the hipsters. Mm. And that scene is like, uh, uh, the hipsters, um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking they're from uh, Pittsburgh. And driving says, no, that's that's on a higher pit from Cleveland. You <laughs> <It's, laughs> <just> it hanging. <laughs> Driver is fascinated by the question of their background. I love the bit where he identifies Gomez as being half Mexican and says that he, he knows this because he had a great affinity with Mexico. Uh, I've been there <laughs> twice, which is a <laughs> <So>. great line. <laughs> 
He's, he's so good at deadpan. Like, yes. Who knew? He was great in Patterson as well, but that was just such a humble, lovely role. But this is just so funny. Yes, I mean, it's almost cliche to say it at this point, and I'm sure he's got a backlash brewing, particularly after the last duel, but Adam Driver's fucking grace, isn't he? Yeah, he's just one of... Uh, this generation of American actors has lots of actors that people love in a sort of slightly too obsessed way. Mm. Like the, the, the basically have a crush on them. That's basically what the the, the depth of their appreciation boils down to. Yeah. Genuine actors who basically can do everything. Mm. Uh, try. I don't think there's anybody else in America right now who really is as good at that as him. Yeah, it is particularly interesting re-watching this, where, as you say, Adam Driver is playing a very sort of awkward, deadpan, minimal kind of guy when the last thing I saw Adam Driver in was Annette, in which he plays the noisiest fucking asshole in the world. <laughs> uh, Star Wars, in which he plays, I don't know, there's just a blank gap in my memory there where I, I had a bridge blackout, probably. <laughs> because the last one is so bad. Uh, I, I even blanked on the name because I, it's just basically avoided memory. I don't want any part of it anymore. It is weird how that movie has just sort of vanished hasn't it because i mean even more so part of you thinks well it's 2019 everything we've been through these last couple of years and made 2019 feel like it happened a million years ago but that was 2019 yeah oh man that's a weird year you know this is 2019 (laughs) the dead don't die is 2019 but this doesn't feel like insanely distant to me no no it doesn't it feels quite yeah current really yeah. And I think it's just the difference as well, really. That was very lavish and overblown. Mm. Um, whereas The Dead Don't Die could have been made in 1970, and I don't think it had affected anything about the movie whatsoever. It's just so unengaged with what's going on. Yeah, I think that's very true, actually. And I, I, when it does engage with genre, uh, it does it in some really interesting ways. I remember that when I like first watch this it might be on the eclectic episode about this i joked that jim jarmusch is the only guy in the world whose favorite bit of night of the living dead is all of that stuff about radiation coming from a satellite or whatever it is because this whole movie is just fixated on that kind of vintage 50s and 60s b-movie tone the reason they're using this is fracking in the north and south pole as shook yeah. it off its axis. Which is great because it's it's more topical, but it's still like still fits perfectly within the sort of completely bollocks pseudoscience that movies like this used to have before everything had to be serious. Yeah, it's like a film from I can't remember when it was, a British film called The Daily Earth Set Fire. Mm. And the, the reason for the the, the world setting fire is I think Russia and America set off a nuclear bomb at opposite ends of the planet at the same time, and it just <laughs> shook the world free. And yeah, that's cycling that is... closer and closer to the Earth. That's Definitely how it works. Yeah, that's what yeah, would happen. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love nuclear paranoia because it. it... Nuclear paranoia movies are either far too paranoid like that, 
or weirdly not paranoid about this stuff at all. I love the other ones as well. You know, there's a giant ant movie called uh, Lem, I think, where at the end, this lead scientist turned to the camera and basically blames the audience for stuff like this potentially happening. It's like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And some people have that problem with the dead don't die. Some people felt that all the stuff about, you know, climate change and consumerism was a bit finger pointy but i didn't i think firstly if you can make a feel-good movie about the climate apocalypse that's that's impressive hold on people thought the the consumerism was a bit finger pointy yeah you just said that yeah yeah i i read that have have those people watched the dawn of the dead no yeah dawn of the dead in the last however many years that it's is weird. ridiculously yeah. finger pointy. It's so on the nose. It is the nose. It's not just a nose. It's a big red nose, like red nose. Day. It's like a red, <laughs> fluffy nose that you stick on top of your already red nose. It's ridiculously on the point. I love it, but to say it's finger pointy, bloody hell. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean... I could leave it at that because that's exactly right. But it's like, the other thing is, I think to make that charge, you have to hyper-focus on a few bits of it where like the zombies are saying something like Wi-Fi or something like that. But Icky Pop Zombie just wants coffee. You know, how how can... (laughs) I don't think Jim Jarmusch is angry at people for liking coffee. I don't think he thinks that's a social problem. And Carol Kane goes Chardonnay. So, you know, I don't think she's mad for wanting that either. Or he, uh, Jamush doesn't suggest it anyway. I mean, Carol Kane's appearance is one of those things where, on, and there are a lot of things like this in The Dead Don't Die. On one level, the only joke is we got Carol Kane for this bit. But yeah. if you're going to make a joke where the punchline is, it's Cavill Kane. Having Cavill Kane as a zombie craving Chardonnay is brilliant. It is as well. It's like a little, I don't know if she meant to do it, but when um, Bill Murray shoots at her, she actually jumps from her. Like, does that? <laughs> she reacts like a normal human would. I don't know if it's in character for the zombies, because the zombies are weird. There's not like a lot of blood. You cut them or shoot them and sort of. Uh, Ash comes out of them. Yeah. I but think yeah, she reacts weirdly like an actor thinking, oh hell, that was close. Yeah. <laughs> I've made this point before, but uh, my theory is that every single Camel Kane film and television appearance could be spliced into Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt as a flashback <laughs> to something that has happened to Lillian and no one would notice the difference. Yes, that's for this especially. It's it, yeah, on the nose, perfect. <laughs> there probably has been a bit of time where Lillian was undead. <laughs> well, given what she got off to with her husband, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she she is great, Cavill Kane. I love her, um, and I was really happy yeah. seeing her in this. Uh, there's a few, because uh, it's such a stacked cast, there are still a few people that we haven't mentioned. We briefly touched on Steve Buscemi's role. Uh, 
I hadn't. Yeah. I think there is a buried joke in this that I hadn't noticed. But I just noticed this when I was researching it for this podcast. He tends to be called Frank in the movie. His yes. full name, Frank Miller. Oh. <laughs> Well, that's not very thinly veiled, is it? No. No, there's no question of who Jarmusch might have been thinking about when he wrote that part. So if you've not seen it, um, he's wearing a, cap, a red cap, MAGA-style cap, that says, Make America White Again. So he's, he's not exactly being, you know, subtle, beating around the bush there. It's, it's actually slightly better than that. The cap says, Keep America White Again, ah, so it doesn't even yes. work grammatically. <laughs> it doesn't, no. <laughs> And uh, he, we introduced him with Danny Glover as well, who was just on Charm Overload in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder about Danny Glover. Part of me thinks that he's like, he consciously stepped away from the game because there was a point in the noughties where if I was reading about Danny Glover, it was probably because he was producing a film by Elia Suleiman of... Uh, What's that Malian guy? You never mean Sasako. So, you oh, know. You're, you're, you're well into this more than me, but yeah. And yeah, his acting roles tend to be with actors or talents that he, he believed in because he was also in uh, Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You as well. Oh, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, which he, we're going to have to do one day. I know every oh, time we meet, we always say we should do a Sorry to Bother You episode, but it's got to be done. It's got to be done. I think, oh, I can't remember who the main character is in that, but he teaches in white voice, uh, Danny Glover. Yeah, Lakeith Stanfield, isn't it? That's the one. Yeah. Lakeith Stanfield is great. I don't know why I forgot him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd forgot he was the guy, um, the guy who sort of has the pivotal moment in this. There's also one uh, actor in here that, I, I mean, I say wasn't famous, certainly not known to me uh, when. I first watched this, but is now more prominent. One of the three hipsters who's travelling along with Selena Gomez is Austin Butler, who was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as Tex Watson, uh, the guy who had the unfortunate encounter with the dog, uh, and will soon be seen in Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic, which we're not going to do for pop screen. Not at all. <laughs> Never. Is he playing Elvis, by the way? He is playing Elvis, yeah. Isn't Kurt Russell? Get him. He's not done it before. He'd be great. <laughs> Actually, no, that's a lie. He did one with uh, John Carpenter, I believe. Was it John Carpenter? I think it was, yeah. There's like an Elvis TV movie they did really early on. Uh, apparently he was very good as Elvis. It's a weird thing to do now, I think, because I just... I can un- There's been a thousand and one Elvis biopics, and, you know, it's a great story, but I don't know if there's like... <laughs> Why do it now? What does it mean to people now that you would do this story again? Because it's it's slightly too far in the past to be nostalgic unless you're specifically targeting people over 70, which I can't imagine they are. I think you want to make your money back at some point. Oh, no, no. It's a weird uh, choice. Another actor, which I think you might have forgot, is Caleb Landry-Jones, who plays uh, oh, the owner yeah. of the... I think it's Bob's Gas and Stuff. Is yeah. Bob? Uh, who's basically a, a gas, a, a petrol station, but he also sells a load of comics and horror horror things. He's got a T-shirt with Nosferatu as well. Yes. He's one of the few characters in it where you think, oh, yeah, I can imagine that character sort of turning up in, in another horror movie, in a more horror horror movie, I guess. Yeah. 
if you're going to call this a postmodern aware horror movie, which I'm, I'm not, it's aware, yeah, sure. But if you were going to do that, he's basically Randy a scream in this. Yes. The one who explains all the rules. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. Um, and I, again, at the risk of making this episode an, an unbroken festival of gushing, uh, I really love Caleb Landry-Jones. I think he's got this really weird, squirrely energy that I always enjoy seeing. He's a little little Steve Buscemi in him, I think, yeah. Oh, that's a good call, actually. Yeah, yeah. Does it have that? I don't like calling somebody weird for the looks because it's so horrible. Some people do use that sort of term and describe Steve Buscemi as that weird-looking actor, and I think, come on, he's right there. He's a human being. reasonably. Yeah. Hollywood has a very narrow perception of what leading men look like. Yes. And he will forever be in the the group, which isn't that. And I think he'll... So far, he's had a very good eye for roles. Completely, yeah. He's in the new Justin Curzel film, Nitrum, which I'm really excited about because uh, that looks mm. like a big, meaty role for him. But I also think Caleb Landry-Jones is just one of those guys who has like the acting equivalent of being born under a good star because do you know what his first screen appearance was? He was the little kid on the tricycle who tells Javier Bardem that he's got a bone sticking out of his arm at the end of No Country for Old Men. That's an incredible start for any actor. I hate to sit all down the hill from there, but kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's very good. I think one of my favourite strands of this film, despite, you know, having gushed over every single actor in this movie, one of my favourite strands of this film is the one that's the least starry, uh, which is the three kids at the juvenile detention centre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, 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 the one issue I have with it is that seems unresolved. Yeah. It's a, uh, come over here, we've got somewhere that'll be safe, and then they run off and you never see them again. Yeah, and I think maybe part of the reason why that feels a bit like a loose end is that it's the one strand of the film that made me think, oh, I could watch a whole movie of this. Like, Tilda Swinton's character is great, but Tilda Swinton's character only works in the context of a big ensemble comedy, and so do most of the other ones. But I would, if someone out there wants to rip this off and just make a whole movie about three juvenile delinquents trying to escape zombies after all of the staff of the detention centre have been killed, I would watch that. That would be fucking great. To cross the streams of podcasts a little moment, um, you we did an episode of Tigers and Cut a little while ago about a Japanese filmmaker called uh, Toshiaki Tioda. Mm. One of the movies there was Blow Spring. And you said then, you know, there should be more juvenile delinquent movies. So it's you've been consistent. You've been consistent with this. And I would love to see that because there's not enough juvenile delinquent movies because I think that term's kind of become a bit poisonous. Yeah, it's like these three little scamps. Yeah. 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 Just some zombie themed rascalry. If we could have that. Uh, yeah, it yeah. doesn't need any car, just, you know, messing about being teenagers, you know. Scrumping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Had about in around town, doing stuff. 
Yeah, I'm, I'd forgotten completely that I said that about Blue Spring, but I stand by it. I'm glad I'm building a consistent brand as, yes. as people who aren't me say. <laughs> yeah, but uh, these, these three, um, I don't know what the story is because none of it really is explained with them, but there's two mm. girls and there's a boy who keeps on turning up to talk with the girls. It seems to be a friend. Yeah. These little scenes where they'll watch TV, like when the zombie attack happens, they just basically sit there while the big muscly guy who makes the um the boy go to the boy's wing of the the center mm. is absolutely mauled by a load of zombies outside in the window. And yeah. it, in, a, in another movie, that scene would be just visceral, just him punching his way through zombies, failing and then being eaten. But here you see that just sort of the hazy silhouette through sort of a window as they're just sitting thinking oh hell should we go in the cupboard yeah let's go in the cupboard <laughs> yeah yeah as you mentioned before it, it is very light on gore i think the first attack with uh icky pop and server driver is the only bit in it which you could really call gory yeah and that's 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 just a lump of chicken breast that he's got in his mouth is that why it actually it, is? I don't know if it is. It just looks so much like chicken breast. Yeah. It can't be anything but. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, Jamush sort of said, I think, that um, he just he just thought that gore would be a bit too heavy. He just didn't see, he found it a bit unappealing for the kind of comedy this is. And I, I get that. I think when you look at how the gore is used in, sorry to bring it up again, other zombie comedies are available, they're just not mm. as good. But if you look at Shaun of the Dead, um, the gore in that is used often at points where it's meant to make you think, oh shit, the danger's real, you know? Yeah, it's Dylan Moran thing. Yeah. yeah. The Dylan Moran scene, I think, is a reference to Day of the Dead, which is just one of the grisliest kills I've ever seen. Completely, yeah. Yeah, but nothing like that here. Just a little bit of chicken breast. Yeah, and, and some, some gloopy, some gloopy red on chests. That's what it. And there's no room for anything like that here. I think the one moment in it where you're meant to think, oh, maybe this is a bit graver than I thought, is the ending. At which point it ends. Yeah, and you can tell like when oh, I, 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 Adam Driver keeps saying it's going to end badly. It does, mm. but when Bill Murray is is got, he's just sort of hunched over, and I think that's one of those little things. It's just. It feels like a play around movie that you make with your friends in the backyard because he, he's getting on, so he's not going to be on the floor getting done in by the zombies. <laughs> so he just sort of hunches over while they're all, you know, huddling. Yes, absolutely. But also <laughs> just, just on the, the, the chemistry between them two, I absolutely adore it. Uh, there's a bit where Adam Driver uh, kills his first zombie and Bill mm. Murray says, heck of a swing you got there. Did you used to play for the local baseball team? So, oh, yeah, yeah, like this season, that season, that season. He just decapitated somebody. But, you know, <laughs> complimenting him on his, on his baseball swing. It's just the chemistry. It's oh, delicious. They're well matched, and it's, it's hard to really match someone with Bill Murray. I think when you look at his, his most sort of prominent roles, it's always been as part of an ensemble, whether that's in something like Ghostbusters or whether it's, you know... Wes Anderson movies now contain everyone. I think I've been yeah. in at least three Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> and I've just forgotten about it. But it's my biggest problem with Wes Anderson movies. But yeah, I'll I'll bring that up on another occasion, probably. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. I think it can be kind of distracting in something like the French Dispatch where you've got Elizabeth Moss there for three lines. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, he's not really done the sort of comedy that a lot of other comic actors and comedians do where it's just two guys and they're bouncing off each other. He's not done that that often. And I think this might be the nearest example I can really think of. Uh, yeah, like, I kept up with him, yeah. Yeah, like little bits as well where I sort of break script and usually where that, um, well, it seems, it appears that the break script because of that, you know, uh, improvisational feel to the slow pace. Filmy says, oh, 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 we're improvising now. And... <laughs> The chemistry, usually when that sort of thing happens, the other actor would there'd be like a look of sheer terror on their face. Mm. But not, it completely keeps favour of them, which I just think uh, goes to add to the the theory that Adam Driver is like one of the best chameleonic actors who can just do everything. Yeah, yeah. He's he's just he always seems so immersed in everything that he does. And normally when with people like that, you can sort of you can catch them acting, but with Driver, you never do. There's never anything show-offy about his acting. In the biggest roles, in the smallest, they all feel very real and lived in. I mean, the first thing that really made me sort of sit up and take notice to him was inside Lewin Davis, which is not a huge pass, but, man, it's a memorable one. That's a weird little segue you've offered me there as well, because that song to sing there is very similar to the song that is very consistent, the theme, as Adam Driver puts it. That's yes. a very familiar song because it's our theme. Uh, Sturgill Simpson, The Dead Don't Die, which pops up over and over and over again. Yeah, it does. And Sturgill Simpson actually has a cameo in this film. He's the fifth of the musicians in this. But uh, somewhere around the middle, there's like a big ensemble scene with lots of zombies attacking shops to get the consumer goods they want. And there's one zombie that's like slouching along, dragging a guitar behind him. Oh, and that's Sturgill yeah. Simpson. He's just singing guitar, guitar, he's saying. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. That's a nice little detail. I do like that. I like that. I've, I've never properly got into Sturgill Simpson's movies, but I have listened to the episode of Trillbilly Workers Party podcast. Uh, which is just a long interview with him, and it just starts with him talking about how much he hates hillbilly elegy, which, I mean, he won me over then, to be honest. I don't need to listen to his music. I just, I feel bonded to him in hate. <laughs> yeah, but honestly, the thing that really comes away from me in this one is, I don't know why people hate it. It's just mm. lovely. It's a sort of hangout movie. Yeah. It just has the nerve that includes zombies, but because it includes zombies, it must be the worst thing in the world ever. I wonder if part of it too, I mean, we've talked a lot about why it doesn't please the horror audience, because it is not, and I agree with you, it is not a horror movie. But the other side to this film's reception is that because it's Jarmusch, it premiered at Cannes, it got the cover of Sight and Sound, and I think... For a film that is as wispy and silly as this, that is just painting a massive target on your back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's 
it's just too small, really. Yeah. To have that sort of attention. It's like, I don't know, a good example of an indie band, which is quite small. Um, let's say the Unicorns. I do like the Unicorns. I don't know whether they're broke through in any way. Not to me. So this is this is probably a good sign, right? You have chosen yeah. a small indie band. So they'd be on the front cover of the NMA mm. and be like, who are these? These are awful. Why are they there? That's terrible. Get them off here. That's the worst thing in the world. They're disgusting. They're disgusting. <laughs> Delete them. Cancel them. Like, no, they're just kind of a quite calm shit without indie band. Cool you're all. Cool you're all. <laughs> I think there are so many stories from like music and cinema, like of things being rolled out in a way that makes it hard to understand the the intention behind them my favorite one is uh, Wawa an album by James where they'd been working with Brian Eno on an album I think it was Laid they were working with him on uh, and that was quite a big hit but Eno also said you know the stuff where you're just jamming in studio is interesting you should release a double album where the second half is is a look at that side of your work but the label disagreed and released the jamming album as its own thing like about a year later <laughs> and people picked it up after they'd had this big hit album and just said what the fuck is this what <laughs> yeah i can imagine because those jam sessions are not really good music for anything no just no, some musicians dicking about really they're interesting if you're invested in the band but asking someone to pay for it as like an actual finished album is just yeah. Make hair while the sun shines, I guess. I guess. But this is that that's maybe kind of what the dead don't die is. It's Jim Jarmush and all of his friends having a sort of movie jam session and it is really thoroughly likable, I think. Alright. If you're on the right uh, page, it's absolutely yeah. lovely and adorable. But if you're not, well, what you're watching it for, really. <laughs> Of all the of all the movies that jump into Jim Jarmusch with, you really picked poorly. You've you've this picked one. the swordfish trombones of Jim Jarmusch movies to start off with. Yes. Yeah, full circle. There. I don't know what you'd start with, honestly, but probably Dead Man. But Dead Man's a good yeah. one. Yeah, I know some people started with Down by Law, and that seemed to work pretty well with them. Yeah, I think I started with that one, which yeah. also stars Tom Waits and uh, Robert Lurie. Oh, John Lurie, yeah, John, John Lurie, Lurie yeah. and Roberto Benigni, who <laughs> Jamush had a miraculous <laughs> ability to make Roberto Benigni tolerable, didn't he? He did, he did. Uh, and then, oh, we like Roberto Benigni in any way, life is beautiful. Oh, no, go away, <laughs> behave. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you enjoyed that podcast, listeners, um, you can get bonus episodes of Pop Screen over at our Patreon uh, at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you'll also get unrestricted access to our other movie podcast, Directors Uncut, and a few things that we're kicking about, would you say? Would you say we're at the kickabout stage? We're certainly at the kickabout stage, yes. Yes. There will be more coming. But until then, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen for another week. I've been Graham. And I have been Rob. And we'll see you next week.
Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less at Marshalls. Gift the good stuff.